0: The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, And have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. One of the things I've enjoyed the most uh, over the last few years is the ability I've had because of the church, uh, the missions committee in particular, to travel in different parts of the world. And my favorite thing is to travel in different parts of the world and experience Christian communities in those places, but also to see some of the sites of ancient Christian community in far-flung regions of the world. And one of the most enjoyable um, trips my wife and I took um, not long ago was to the country of Turkey. Now, the country of Turkey is primarily where all of the letters at the beginning of Revelation are written to. One of these days, I'm going to show you a map of the circle of churches. It's kind of an oblong circle of churches that the book of Revelation was written to. It would be really easy for me, those of you who know me, to completely geek out on the historical nature of the church right now. There are, in my opinion, so many fun things to talk about when it comes to the church of Ephesus and Sardis and a lot of places. But let me just give you an overview. Today we're thinking about the church at Ephesus where Paul addresses the first letter in the book of Revelation. Ephesus was a hugely important city. As a matter of fact, it had a population of 250,000 people, best estimate. Now, that might not seem huge to us, but that made it the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It shows you how significant it was. It was the capital city of the Roman province. And it also was sort of an administrative center. People from all over the Roman Empire would come there to work through governmental issues and to process papers and citizenship and all kinds of things like that. It was a busy city. It had in its uh, heart, I should say, the heart of the city, not because it was in the middle, but because it was the most obvious thing when you arrived, was a gigantic stadium of 25,000 seats. You can see that stadium right there. We were in that stadium, sat up there in one of those places, and I tried to imagine what happened there. But you know where my imagination was going? It was going to the Apostle Paul because he had been there. That was Paul's Ephesus. When you enter the city of Ephesus from the sea, there is a gigantic bay area. Now, because of a river that had a lot of silt in it, that bay is no longer a bay, but that's the way it was. And the major road from the bay into the city ran right into that 25,000-seat stadium It was the heart of the city. It was also a commerce center. This is the road coming into the city from the Bay Area. It was a commerce city, and that particular street was what you might call a highway back then. It was 35 feet wide, and you could see the ruins on either side, whether buildings or pillars. It must have been a grand entrance into a city. It was also a place that had a lot of religious trappings in it. As a matter of fact, in the city of Ephesus, um, there were multiple emperor cult temples. That is, they were temples dedicated to particular emperors in Rome. For instance, uh, Claudius and Servus. And one dedicated that still remains in part To Hadrian. You can see just from looking at the intricacies of that architectural structure, it must have been beautiful. Another temple, which really dwarfed all of those but is no longer in Ephesus because all we have is some of its ruins, was a temple to Artemis, or sometimes called Diana. This temple to Artemis was really the ethical. The religious center of the city. It was also, in many ways, the place where much commerce took place, and I'll say something about that in a minute. This city was also rich in cultural diversity and intellectual diversity. Um, this picture is a picture of a what remains of a library a library dedicated to a particular Roman soldier named Celsus. That library was magnificent. And along with it, the temple to Artemis particularly was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. So Ephesus was a dramatically important and fascinating place. It had a rich history in the Christian tradition. You may remember names if you know the story of Acts. Names like Aquila and Priscilla, who were a part of that community at one time. You remember the name of Apollos. He was a part of that community one time. And as a matter of fact, when Paul made his journeys and planted churches and Help disciples in those places. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other city for a protracted period of time. He was there for a full two years teaching, the longest period of time. Uh, Following that, he established Timothy as the chief elder in the city of Ephesus. So we actually have three letters, at least three letters, that are written to the people in Ephesus. One, Ephesians, and the others are written to Timothy as the bishop of Ephesus. It was a very highly sophisticated theological city as well. In other words, if you took a look at the books of the New Testament... The letters that Paul wrote, it's arguably true that the most intense, neatly packed theological treatise of all is the epistle to the Ephesians. Some people have called it the little book of Romans. It is tight in its theology. It's exact. If you are a theologically inclined person, it's beautiful. So I have to admit It's my favorite book of the New Testament. I love Ephesus. I love the city. I love the book itself. But here's what we hear about Ephesus. Coming from John, sometime after Paul had already been martyred. John, now on the Isle of Patmos, about 60 miles off the coast of Ephesus, exiled there, he writes a letter to the Ephesian Christians. And he says, I want to give you three compliments. Easy to follow this. Here are the three compliments. I want to compliment you for your good works. Apparently, at least early on, they were a city who loved one another, loved the city, loved even the pagan culture. They fed the poor. They helped those who were in need. They visited the sick and those who were alone. It was characteristic of them. I want to compliment you for that, says the apostle, to them for your good works. I also want to compliment you for something else. Your endurance. You're a city, I know. You're a church in this town that's endured persecution. And we see some of that persecution actually in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, you may remember the story of the riot in Ephesus. Paul had been lecturing in the city. First, he started out speaking in the synagogue and then he was kicked out of the synagogue so he moved to this lecture hall of Tyranus and he spoke there for a protracted amount of time and people flocked in and listened and people came to faith in Christ and discipleship began to happen and in the midst of all of that success a big problem broke out. People were turning to Jesus Christ And listening to the teachings of Paul, which among other things, said that idols were no gods at all. There was only one God. Well, you can see what might happen if that kind of teaching is embraced by a large number of people in a city like Ephesus. The idol factories, not really factories back then, but craftsmen of idols, they started to lose some of their economic power. Hundreds and thousands of people were no longer interested in buying idols. A man's name was Demetrius in this story. He comes and he stirs up the city. He says, look, we're losing a lot of business here because this guy is saying idols are no gods. We have to do something about it. He stirred up the people so much. Remember that picture? The 25,000 seat arena. He stirred them up so much. And he got all the people packed into that theater. And there was a huge outrage. Two of Paul's compatriots were dragged right in front of the crowd, probably in that flat area, and abused and beaten. And Paul wanted to go in to address the crowd, but the other disciples refused to allow him to go in. Eventually, a member of the city council stood up and said, people, people, calm down. We're a wonderful city. We're devoted to the temple of Artemis, the goddess that fell down from heaven, in a way, right in front of us. We're not giving that up, but we are a diverse city. And what we can't do, we can't start this riot. Let people be who they are. And if this God, essentially, that Paul speaks of is a great God, let the results play out. I want you to calm down because you know what's going to happen if you don't calm down, people of Ephesus? We're going to be known as a riotous city. And the Roman government is going to come and squash us. Please, for the sake of peace, just calm down and let everybody be who they are. Well, sounder minds prevailed, and they did calm down. But you know what eventually happens? Over the history of that city, large numbers of people come to Christ. And it becomes known as one of the chief cities in Christendom. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest councils of the church was held right there at Ephesus in 451 AD. It became hallmark of Christianity there's the background in short Paul was writing to that city new young converts who were frequently in harm's way and he said I want to compliment you for your good works and your endurance in the midst of of persecution you know I know what that's like the third thing he said and I want to compliment you on is your sound doctrine you find things to be very important in the scripture and what you are against is self-styled teachers self-styled apostles and there were many of them who would come through various cities and teach some religious idea you evaluate them you think well about it you search the scripture and then you call out error and I want to compliment you for that because that is critically important sometimes by the way it seems dry doesn't it a little bit like I may seem from time to time dry. But it's absolutely critical. What we think is who we become. What we believe is played out from Monday through Sunday. Paul says, I want to thank you for being critical evaluators of doctrine. I want to thank you for thinking, for being a thinking people. I don't know if um, Paul was thinking psychologically, probably not. But you know how it goes. People say, if you're going to tell somebody something critical, give them at least three good things about them. Paul starts out with three good things. Hey, you guys are great in these three areas. And then he says, you got a problem. What was the problem? The problem was they had lost their first love. I think I've mentioned a couple of times Paul said, it wasn't Paul, it was John saying this to them. On the other hand, you can't help but think about the words of Paul when you hear the words of John. You've lost your first love. Why is that important? Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know it all. You could probably say it by heart. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and don't have love, it's worth nothing. Though I sell all my goods and give it to the poor and I have not love, it's worthless. Right at the heart of the gospel is love. Love of God and love of others. And John is speaking into a very heady group of people. People who are strict about their doctrine. And he said, I don't want you to forget something. Namely the most important thing, love. It's at the center of it all. I can't imagine uh, that these people, when they heard that word, couldn't help but think about Paul's epistle, where he named love as the most important thing you say what what is the the first love that they lost? Our immediate inclination is to say they have lost their passion and their love for Christ that they once had. Not a bad interpretation at all. On the other hand, when you take carefully a look at the text, you'll you'll see a directive from John. Do the things you once did. Typically, do the things you once did means do the things that once demonstrated love. So perhaps when he is addressing these people and he's saying, you lost your first love. He's essentially repeating the opposite of the great commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've lost your first love. You're not passionate about your love for Jesus, and your passionate love is not expressed and love towards others as it used to be. Return, he says, to your first love. By the way, it was really almost abnormal culturally for philosophers or religions to admonish their followers to love everyone. Your family, yes. Your tribe, yes. Your nation, yes. But this directive that came from Jesus is so clear throughout the New Testament that you're even supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to love everyone. That was radically different. And I think John is reminding them of that radical difference. What do you suppose had happened? How had they gotten to the place that he needed to address this issue in their life? Maybe because they're smart. Maybe because they're careful about doctrine. He says at one point in this letter, you hate the Nicolaitans. And I applaud you for that. I do too. You know, it's possible though. In the hatred of evil... And the hatred of false doctrine, it's possible that in that righteous indignation, that hatred, even well-directed, could start to infect us. It could start to become who we are and what we're known for And John says, dear friends, I want you to return to your first love. Maybe that's why he said it. Let me pause um, and state the obvious. You know where we live. You know who we are. We're kind of a heady bunch. For the most part, we like to think and debate. Is it possible that our rigorous approach to the life of the mind could eclipse the love of the heart that we're supposed to have for one another and for others? I think it could. maybe more than any other letter when i read it this one seems like potentially it's addressed to us what's the solution if those were if that was the core problem what's the solution he gives three solutions the first is this remember 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 what it was like maybe he's saying when you first came to christ Remember that when I came to you and gave you the clear, perfectly clear doctrines concerning Jesus Christ, the one who is God in the flesh, the one who died to redeem you, the one who asked for your complete loyalty, maybe, maybe you remember what that was like. And maybe he's saying what some of you have experienced and multiple people across the earth have experienced. When that reality dawns on you, all of a sudden a weight is rolled off of you. You don't have to keep searching for this and that and running after that idea and this idea, frantically trying to satisfy the inner longings of your heart. You have found the truth in Jesus You know, it's not unlike falling in love. Maybe some of you remember a time where you were running and searching and trying to find him or her. And then you found them. And then the frantic search was over. And then your heart was satisfied. You had peace. Maybe John's saying that, return, remember, remember what it was like when you had your first love. Maybe he's also saying, remember what Christian community was like when you found your first love? Remember how you loved your community? Remember how you loved everyone when you understood the teachings of Jesus? Remember how in community, can we think about the book of Acts? You were all together in one accord. You were all together in community supporting one another. Remember that and remember how you loved the world and reached out to it. Remember Christian community? Remember an intimate love with God So he says, remember it. And then he says, repent. I'll put it differently. Enough with all the excuses, John says. Allow yourself to acknowledge the dullness of your love. That's what repentance is on this occasion. It's repenting of the dullness of your love. It's repenting of this. Do it, says John admit you admit you've lost your focus admit that your hatred for false doctrine has created you in you a critical and a harsh spirit that's hurtful towards others repent of it and then the third solution return very simply return return to the beginning Again, I think a template comes from the book of Acts. Return to that time where you were passionate about the teachings of the apostles, the study of the scripture. Return to that time where you were passionate in prayer. Return to that time where you cared for one another and no one was without. Return to that time where you loved one another and everybody in the community. Knew it. Can I say that again? They may have thought you were weird. They may have thought that you had crazy ideas and that your singular devotion to one God was just foolish. They may have thought a lot of things, but they never wondered. About your love. Because you love one another. Remember the words of Jesus in John's gospel? This is it. They'll know you're my disciples when you love one another. And they never doubted that you actually love the world. Do you know that was one of the chief characteristics of the first century church? They loved their world. They loved people. They invited everyone in. They welcomed the stranger. They embraced the nomad. They supplied the need of the poor. They loved like Jesus loved. I want you to return to that, says John. So what does that mean for you and for us, you individually, and us as the church? I think just two things. One, in order to hear this word and take it seriously, we must take a fearless inventory of ourselves and our church. We have to ask difficult questions about who we are and what we've become as individuals, and as a church. It might not be true, my friends. Matter of fact, let me state it more directly. I don't think it is true that we are hateful, revengeful, nasty people. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who think we are You know from the survey we did recently. What should that mean to us? We can say, well, they just hate us and misunderstand. Or we can say, what is it about us that contributes to that public understanding? If we ask that serious inventory question, maybe we will be driven to repentance. Repentance. And remembering and returning. We don't just love one another. We love our world. And it ought to be so evident that people can't think of us without thinking of that. Return to what you once did as well. It's clear that in the first century church, the church was known as people who not only helped one another, but helped others. You know, it wasn't a, um, a so-called sophisticated, and I use that word in a pejorative way. It wasn't a sophisticated form of abortion in the first century church. But there was abortion nonetheless, and part of it was just abandonment of children. Children would be left on the front steps of a temple or a city complex or in a square. You know what the Christians were known for, picking them up and making them their children. What a way address an evil with nothing but pure love that's what the church was known for are we known for the same kind of disposition the same kind of thing are we known as a people who disagree but love Who actually call out evil doctrine, but still love? Who preach against sin, but love those who live in sin? We ought to be those people. Because if we are, I think we're returning to our first love. Let's follow the admonition that was given to the church at Ephesus and see what effect it has on us as the church of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, sometimes um, your word makes us happy. Sometimes your word makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes We must admit, your word just confuses us. And so in the midst of those three experiences, joy and discomfort and confusion, we ask you to help us understand. We ask you to allow the words of the Scripture to penetrate our hearts. Not just what they meant to a first century culture, but what they might mean to us. We don't have all the answers about what that might mean to us. But your spirit can impress on our hearts what it means to remember, to repent, and to return. So that we pray, Lord, now that your spirit will do the work that only your spirit can do in our hearts by faith and that you will give us the will to follow. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.